so welcome. Uh, so this is uh, anatomy uh, intro, so A&P 1, uh, for your program, Venturism. Uh, you're stuck with me for the next uh, 14 weeks at this time in this classroom. Um, I'm uh, Tom Lilly, um, and I've been teaching anatomy in the uh, nursing program for since 2014, uh, and in this program since, uh, since last year. So it's not the first go around of this class. Uh, this is definitely the smallest group I've had, but that's okay. So if you guys are tight, it should be pretty good. Um, <clears throat> let's kind of get rolling through the uh, through the syllabus here and uh, and get acquainted with this class. So um, <clears throat> I go by Tom. Okay, uh, my legal name is Thomas. All right. So my email is thomas.lily at georgiancollege.ca. Make sure you have that down somewhere. Um, I'm part-time faculty, so I don't have a permanent office, which means if you need to get a hold of me, email is the best way. I'll always do my best to respond to you as quickly as I can. Um, if you don't get something back immediately, don't despair. I'll, I'll get it. Um, <laughs> the other part of that is um, if for some reason you want to meet, right, you need to sit down, you feel you're having trouble with the class, or you want to discuss something or whatever the case is, if it's something that can't be done over email, we can certainly um, meet if we need to. Uh, it's just got to be um, planned in advance, so I won't have drop-in hours. You just got to send me an email, and we'll work out a time together where we can have a room, and, and we can certainly do that. Okay? <laughs> so, uh, very, very, very briefly about me. Um, I'm a practicing chiropractor for the last uh, 10 years. Um, my background is in kinesiology, so study the human body, and my master's is in nutrition. But um, I'm an anatomy nerd, and I have been really enjoying teaching for the last uh, six years or so. So um, <laughs> let's talk about what this class, <coughs> what this class is about. Um, most anatomy classes, the way a typical anatomy physiology class works is you learn anatomy and physiology together because form and function are very much interrelated. It's kind of foolish to learn one without the other. Um, and generally, it's going to follow a systems approach, which is kind of how this intro class works, or at least looks towards the end. So basically means you would generally go kind of system, like organ system by organ system through the body and learn each one individually rather than something like a regional approach where you look at different parts of the body. Um, well, this class, of course, because it's starting from the, the very bottom, you, um, we see some earlier on kind of ba more basic idea type stuff before we get into, into the actual systems. Um, so we basically start from, uh, from small and work our way up to, to bigger and bigger structures. So today we'll talk about some basic introductions, some terminology, some directional stuff, and some, some terms that you have to learn for basic anatomy labeling that you'll You'll, it, it, I will admit it does seem like a, little, uh, like a lot all at once at first, but it's terminology you just got to get used to and repetition will help and it'll, you'll see it over and over and over as you move through the body in other, in other uh, classes. Um, <laughs> and then we start to go from next week on uh, small to big. So start with uh, everyone's favorite class, chemistry, uh, and then we'll get a little bigger. Um, we'll talk about um, microbiology, so basically non-human cells, so, and then we'll after that, we'll talk about um, cells, specifically human cells. Uh, and then we'll get to slightly bigger. So you take cells and you put them together and you add connective tissue and we get tissues. And then you put tissues together, you get organs and organ systems. 
uh, and then from then on it's more or less a systems approach for the until the end of our class and you'll pick up that kind of approach in a different class later on so the systems we cover well the w system we cover is the integumentary system which is skin hair and nails uh, and then we'll do a unit at the end on genetics uh, and then uh, and that's it for this class okay <coughs> so excuse me <coughs> so let's uh, take a look briefly at the at the textbook and how it flows and the units that we'll cover can I borrow your book for two seconds Okay, this is the textbook for the class, it's, uh, Mary Epps, uh Human Anatomy and Physiology, uh, 11th edition. That's where the, um, this textbook is where the notes come from, at least the basic parts of the notes. Um, so the corresponding chapter numbers are on the syllabus with your unit numbers here. Um, so for example, the introduction unit, unit one, corresponds with chapter one of the textbook, unit two, chapter two, etc. There is no chapter in your book on Mike, on, I'll mute that, on microbiology. Um, so I've pulled information from elsewhere, um, but the notes will be totally fine for that. So before we go on, I guess, <coughs> on the syllabus, it says on the right you have assigned reading. Um, I don't intend for you to have to read the entirety of all chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 29, etc. Um, those chapters are meant as a supplement. <laughs> um, it's an excellent textbook. If you're in any kind of health profession, you should have an anatomy textbook, and that is a good one. Um, although, quite frankly, if we're being honest, you could get by with a different one. If you have a different version or a different textbook, you could certainly get by, and I wouldn't stop you from doing so. Um, but like I said, it's excellent as a supplement. If you um, come away from class and you, you're like, eh, I wasn't quite sure what he was talking about. Uh, I want it in different context, different words. Um, prefer to read rather than hear, then, then, then read the, the, you know, the relevant stuff in the, in the relevant chapters and it will be helpful. There will also be you know, uh, helpful review questions and things like that to make sure that you're, you know, um, the information is sinking in. Um, but for testing purposes, uh, everything that we'll, you'll be tested on will come from our notes and our class discussions. So uh, the PowerPoints and, and what we talk about, and we'll add in some things here and there sometimes. So one, that means it's, it is helpful and important to come to class because sometimes there'll be things we'll add to the notes that are not already there. Uh, and two, I promise you that I will not pick little things out of the textbook that we did not cover in class and test you on them. That's not fair. Okay. We have an understanding? Cool. All right, <clears throat> so let's go through the, uh, the units that are covered uh, in this class and kind of how the testing works. That's usually what people want to know first. So um, there are, well, let's jump to the end here. Um, this class is, is, uh, is mandated to be 70% um, made up of uh, tests and a comprehensive, so um, <laughs> cumulative final exam and 30% on assignments. Okay, we have no choice in that, this is the way it has to be. Um, so that means that there are going to be three unit tests uh, worth 15% each, and a final exam worth 25%, and then three assignments worth 10% each. So let's talk about what the structure of those is gonna look like and the scheduling and get our heads wrapped around it. So um, the unit tests. So test one on uh, a week four, January 29th, uh, test 2 on week 10, and test 3 on week 12. The structure of all of those tests is going to be identical. Okay? The test will be uh, 50 multiple choice questions, so you'll, you'll complete a bubble sheet, right, an kindy sheet, um, one hour long at the beginning of class. 
right? and then we'll have lecture after that hour. So uh, that means your tests will always be at 2 o'clock. Whenever you finish, you finish, give me your tests, take off, have a coffee, have lunch, whatever. Uh, come back for 3 o'clock and we'll, we'll discuss whatever the topic of the day is um, in that time afterwards. Okay? Um, <clears throat> so, again, 50 multiple choice questions for each one of those. Um, I tr always try to mark your tests as quickly as possible, so assuming scanners and printers and everything works, um, I'll usually have the marks up the same day if I can. Uh, and then I always try to, uh, to have us review the, the test if the scheduling allows the next week in class. Okay? So I know tests are a sore spot for people. This cause anxiety and stress and all that stuff. And I get that. So I sat where you sit for a long, long time. Um, but tests are not meant to be punishment. Right? The tests are not supposed to be punitive. Um, they're supposed to be a part of the learning experience. And I know they sometimes don't feel that way in the moment. But um, I always want you to review your tests afterwards. So the week after, um, you'll get it back temporarily. You don't get to keep it, but you can take a look at it. Uh, we'll go through all the questions, uh, and I'll, you, know, you can see where you did well, where you maybe didn't do so well. Um, you can ask questions if there's you know, something that you want to have clarification on. Uh, and, then, uh, and then you can learn from where you maybe didn't do quite so hot. Um, so that, again, I see that as a beneficial learning experience, so I hope that you do as well. Um, people, all, students also tend to find it valuable because your final exam is cumulative. So let's talk about that. The final exam on week 15, April 15th, uh, is worth 25%. It'll basically be twice as long as you've been seeing on the unit tests all the way through. So it'll be at the beginning of class again at 2 o'clock. Two hours, 100 multiple choice questions, and that's it. Okay? Um, so on all those unit tests in the final, don't expect to see short answer, fill in the blank, long answer, anything like that. They won't be there. It's strictly multiple choice. There's other times and places for that other stuff. Um, and the general breakdown of the, of, the, uh, of the cumulative final exam is approximately 50 questions of material that you have not been tested on yet, which in this case will be uh, genetics, and 50 questions on material that you've seen before. So stuff, uh, questions I'll ask you about the previous uh, six units. Okay. So that means that um, I'll make you a promise now that when, when, uh, when I ask you cumulative questions on the final, I'm not going to dig up random little nitpicky detail stuff from the depths of the previous units. The questions that you're going to see that are cumulative on the final are going to be the big picture idea stuff that you definitely should have been taking away from and retaining from the previous units. Okay. I know sometimes at that time of the year it adds up. There's lots of material to cover. Um, can't do much about that. It's anatomy. There's, there's lots to cover. Okay? So far so good? All right. <laughs> so that leaves our three assignments. So three of them worth 10% each. Um, I'll explain one and three first because they are basically the same format. Um, assignments one and three. You see here on the syllabus when they are due. Um, due on that date, so week three, so one coming up in a couple weeks, and on the last class, um, those are basically take-home tests. Okay, so um, what they more or less look like is um, it's a word document. 
um, broken into uh, four sections. Um, the first section usually is worth 15 points, so um, 15 questions at one point each, and they're basically definitions or brief kind of quick answers. So you're going to fill in your answers in the Word document, and then when you're done, you print it out and you, you bring it into class at the beginning of class on this day, January 22nd. I'll mark it by hand, I'll hand it back to you the following week. <laughs> so it'll start off with some short answer stuff, some longer and longer, and you know, uh, and then you know, two hundred ish word answers sort of thing towards the end, worth more points. Um, so the whole thing will be worth fifty points. Um, it's um, it also serves as a good review, right? So um, this here, you know, the uh, assignment one covers uh, units one and two which are exactly the units that you're going to get tested on in your unit test the following week. So I'll be asking you things that will kind of be nudging you towards the kinds of things that you should be studying anyway, so people find that it is a good tool to, uh, to get yourself in the, headed in the right direction study-wise for the upcoming unit test. Okay? It's also, I mean, quite frankly, it's it's a home take-home test. It's open book, right? So you know, use whatever, use your resources, use your textbook, use your notes, collaborate with each other. That's all good. If you want to work in, in pairs, small groups, that's fine. You still have to um, write out your own assignment in your own words and hand in individual assignments. <coughs> but um, there's nothing stopping you from working together. If that's how you choose to learn best, that's totally fine with me. Okay? Um, so units, assignment one is, is that structure. Assignment three is that same structure as well, and it's due on the last um, the last class, so you'll get it back at the day of the final exam. But again, uh, assignment three is going to be uh, largely about genetics, which is helpful because that's going to be worth half of the final exam, uh, and then also some kind of other review questions peppered in there here and there. So again, it's nudging you towards studying for that upcoming final exam. Okay. Uh, assignment two is different. So those uh, one, one and three, you fill your, type your answers in that Word document, you print it out, you hand it in at the beginning of that class when the day is due. Assignment two kind of has two parts. So assignment two is what I call a poster, okay? And by quote-unquote poster, I thought I muted that, sorry. Um, what I mean by poster is um, not a big poster, but basically a one page document. Okay, so it's going to be a one page document that um, you're going to be assigned uh, a disorder of the oral cavity. Okay, so basically something that can go wrong, a disease process, an infection, uh, something that can go on in the mouth, relevant to chosen profession. Um, and um, you're going to do those individually. So you're going to make up those one-page documents, uh, and you're going to submit it to me uh, through Blackboard. So there'll be, a, um, there'll be a, a way that you can submit it through Blackboard um, uh, by 11 a.m. on the February the 12th. So be very clear, don't miss that uh, date. It'll be, those instructions will be on the document, on the assignment itself as well. So it'll be clear, um, so, but you're not handing that one in physically to me. In class, and the reason for that is um, I'm going to compile them all together uh, and make one larger document, and then you're all going to get copies of all your pages. Okay, so you'll basically, if this is your class number, you're going to basically get back an eight page document with 
one page from each of you on eight different disorders. Okay, so it's an interesting resource that you have to keep, but it's also going to be for you, uh, it's going to be testable on test two. Okay, again, that will be laid out in your instructions as well, but you can mark that down right now if you want to make sure you remember. The second unit test, it's, on, uh, it's going to be tested on units three and four, microbiology and the cell, plus the information from assignment two. Okay, so the one sheet, uh, the, the, the one page document that you submit to me on Blackboard is worth half of the value of assignment two, so 5%. The other half is your presentation. So on week seven, there is no lecture that day unless we have run the time somewhere else and it spills over. Uh, but uh, that is exclusively for uh, presentations. They're not terribly long or complicated. Uh, you're presenting to the rest of the class the exact topic that you did your one-page assignment on and submitted the previous week. Okay, so for that part of it, you can use PowerPoint if you want. You can uh, do a poster. You can do whatever you want. Okay, uh, just know that you're going to be presenting to the rest of the class, um, and you'll be the, the other second half of that assignment mark is going to be based on that presentation. Okay. Um, five to ten minutes tops. I'm not looking for a super in-depth, like this is a one-pager, uh, but I want you to be able to present it uh, um, to the rest of the class and be comfortable with it. Okay? And again, valuable for everyone because that material is going to be testable on the second unit test. Any questions yet? All right. Um, one more, uh, one more, you guys are all fam you're familiar with Blackboard by now? Okay, good. Um, make sure that you check it regularly because that's the main mode of communication. Um, if I send out an announcement to you guys, I'll always attach it as an email so you should get it uh, immediately. But make sure that any communication that we have is from your Georgian College email. I won't answer emails that don't come from a, from a Georgian College email. Um, let's go to our class here. Uh, if you haven't, or I hope you've all seen this already, but just in case you haven't, course information, the syllabus that I've been reading from is posted, the course outline has been posted. Um, make sure that you, you won't use that for our class, but it's for your records, so make sure you download that and keep it. It basically shows what this class covered in case you ever do transfers or anything like that, uh, stuff for licensure later on down the line. Uh, your uh, slides, your PowerPoint slides, they're all up here under weekly learning for the entirety of the semester. Um, do whatever you want in class, whatever works for you. If you want to bring in your laptop and, and write your notes in your laptop, that's cool. Save the trees. Uh, if you want to print out your notes and write on them, a lot of people do that too. <laughs> Just as long as you're prepared for class and you have something, something to, that's going to help you learn the notes properly. So everything that we're going to cover notes-wise is already up there available to you. Um, when the uh, assignments, so if you go on, you won't be able to see these, uh, but they'll, the assignments will populate um, automatically when they are supposed to on the appropriate dates. Um, I'm not certain that I actually gave you those times. So um, basically, um, the assignments one and three, the take-home tests assignments, um, you're going to have basically a week to do them. So when we finish class next week, by the time you walk out the door, the, uh, the assignment number one will be available to you on Blackboard. Okay? And then again, it's due at the beginning of class the following week. 
And the same thing will apply for assignment three. Um, it'll be available at the end of class the week before. So you basically have one week to complete them. Okay? Um, assignment uh, two, I haven't quite nailed down when I'm going to give that to you just yet, but I'll probably give you a little bit more time than uh, than a week. I'll let you know I've got a, I wanted to get final numbers on on att attendance, and then uh, I'll, I'll pick topics for you, and then we'll uh, we'll go from there. <clears throat> All right, what else? Oh, um, because there's a reasonable you know this reasonable amount of material in this class, and because sometimes lectures get long and I can talk fast. A um, couple things. One, um, classes go better if we are engaged, if we ask questions, if we participate. I know that's a little bit more pressure than usual because you guys are a small group. It is what it is. Um, it's usually more enjoyable if we uh, and and engaging and people learn from discussions that we have. So please, please feel comfortable enough to participate. Um, Slow me down if you need to, ask questions, put up your hand. If you need me to repeat something uh, or explain something in a different way, I will absolutely do so until we get it right. Okay, We're a small enough group that we should be able to, to make sure that everybody is on the same page. Um, to supplement that, I will be recording all of our lectures and I'll post them uh, after the lecture's over uh, as a podcast so that you can listen to it later on if you want to hear the material uh, again. Okay, um, feel free to if you want to. You're not obviously not obliged to, but if it's available uh, for you, if you so choose. I've had students tell me in the past that they listen to me in the car. If that's how you choose to torture yourself during your drive-in, then you go right ahead. All right. Uh, what else? The basics. Uh, you guys, this is in your first class, so uh, so you should be acquainted with this stuff already. Uh, you know, guidelines against cheating, uh, so it'll be pretty straightforward. Don't cheat during multiple choice exams. There's lots of room we can spread out in this class, so it really shouldn't be a problem. Uh, plagiarism stuff, the biggest issue with plagiarism in this class would be with your take-home assignments, uh, where you're, all three of your assignments. So like I said, fully encourage you to collaborate if you so choose on your assignments, but make sure that you are writing them in your own words. Okay, I don't want cut and paste, um, even if you have worked closely with somebody. I want to, in your own words, submit your own assignment. Um, and for, um, for your, uh, your assignment two, uh, I'm going to want references. Okay, so you're going to have to add references to your, to your assignment so we know where the material came from. Um, so let's not be cutting and pasting the material for that either. All right. Uh, beyond that, in-class stuff, um, obviously laptops, phones, everything is, is all good. Um, can't stop that. Uh, just as long as everything is on silent and you're not disturbing people around you. Um, the obvious exception to that is during tests. Um, as much as we try to stay fairly casual in class, a hard rule on test day is if your phone goes off during a test, your mark is going to be zero. Okay, So make sure that your phone is off before uh, test starts and vibrate is not off. Okay, you've been warned. I'll warn you again later. Let's make sure it doesn't happen. It's just respectful to everybody else. Uh, beyond that, um, food, drink, all that stuff is all cool in class as long as it's not um, bothering your neighbors. It's not as, as long as it's not like a super offensive smell. So I wouldn't be you know, heating up fish and bringing it in here. Uh, but beyond that, everything's cool. Okay, it's the middle of the day. 
Um, <clears throat> if anybody is uh, doing accommodated testing, then shoot me a quick email so that I, uh, that I know. Um, if you are, then hopefully you should be aware by now how that process works. Make sure that you give the testing center uh, the appropriate um, uh, lead time. Um, absolute bare minimum of three business days notice before your tests or they will deny you in the beginning pretty sticky about that so don't push their don't, don't push your luck um, the uh, the other the other thing would be uh, makeup tests so um, the only college policy the only acceptable reason for uh, to miss a test and do a, a legitimate makeup is documented medical um, situations so you need a doctor's note or a family emergency Okay, so if that happens, make sure you email me as quickly as you can so I know what's up uh, and get your note and, and then we'll book you, a, we'll get you booked in for a makeup test in the testing center within seven days. All right, <laughs> pass in this class is 50%. Well, you need uh, cumulative 60% amongst all your classes to, to proceed through the semester. Kind of straightforward stuff, college policy. Um, Beyond that, uh, being an anatomy class, um, you know, it's an intro class, but there's still a, a decent amount of material. And if you get behind, um, then it can start to pile up really quick. So my, my absolute best advice to you would be, one, be prepared for class, okay? So the preference would be you at least skim the notes before you come to class. So I, I certainly don't expect you to know everything 100% from the notes before you come to class, then I'm out of a job, right? That makes me irrelevant. The point is, at least have an idea of the skeleton of what it is that we're supposed to be learning that week so that you are not seeing everything for the very first time, deer in the headlights kind of thing uh, throughout class, that we're more filling in gaps. That makes things a lot easier and less stressful. Um, you'll be wanting to review your notes afterwards. Um, my my best advice there is that uh, is that you don't wait until the very last minute. Don't try to cram for this test. Um, it can be done, but you probably won't get achieve you know the the outcome that you're hoping for. Okay. And again, this uh, the final exam is cumulative, so you want to learn it right and in a way that you're going to retain it or at least retain most of it because you're going to see it again at the end of the semester. Um, show up for class. I mean, it's a pretty small group. I'm going to know if you're not here. Uh, you don't get marked on attendance. Uh, it's not tactically mandatory, uh, but, um, but it's, it's pretty much across the board in these kinds of classes. Those that show up for, you know, to class and are engaged and ask questions and participate will do the best by far. Okay? Any questions now? All right. We'll pause this for a quick sec. Okay, so we'll dive right in. There are two sets of slides uh, for today's lecture on intro to the human body. Uh, so let's get right into it. Uh, we're going to get ourselves kind of situated. So um, there will be, of course, be some parts of this class that will ultimately not be terribly relevant to your eventual day-to-day -day practice. We understand, okay? but. Um, it's, it's important to have a foundation of all of how the body works and on all of it or as much of it as possible. Also, you need to be able to um, have, the, have the skills to be able to communicate with, other, with, with, uh, with patients, with people, and also with other healthcare 
professionals. So it's important that you learn the basics of how everyone learns anatomy. Okay? So uh, anatomy and physiology, as I kind of alluded to earlier, um, are interrelated. Anatomy is when we study the parts of the body and how they're, how they're physically uh, linked together in their relationships with each other, whereas physiology is how those things work. Okay? So basically we have form in anatomy and we have function uh, in physiology. Okay? And those two things are very much interrelated in how we develop um, basically the you know, um, form essentially f uh, follows function. Right? Our body is made up in a way that gets the job done and we've, we've evolved to, to have uh, structures interrelated in, in such a way. So when you're looking at anatomy as a whole, you can divide it, you can subdivide it into a few different approaches. Um, gross anatomy, okay, we'll do some gross anatomy. That's also called macroscopic. That means the big stuff. It means things you can see with the naked eye without the assistance of something like a microscope. So we'll do things like regional anatomy and look at various you know, larger parts of the body. Um, we'll do some systemic anatomy where you look at one system and for us that ends up being the integumentary system towards the end of the semester. Um, you can do surface anatomy, that's important, um, to be able to look at the surface of, 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 a, of somebody's body and know landmarks and know what is supposed to be underneath. So you've learned what's underneath and then you learn what it looks like over top. Of course not being able to open the person up and see what's inside. Microscopic anatomy is also important as opposed to macroscopic. Macro being what you can see uh, with the naked eye, micro being what you can see with the microscope. And so here we start to get to some of the smaller stuff because tissues are made up of cells and proteins. Uh, and uh, we need to, some, a lot, in a lot of circumstances, um, the function of a tissue is going to be dictated by the kinds of cells that make it up and what those cells do. So this is where we start kind of linking into some physiology stuff. Um, Terminology-wise, uh, cytology, um, the, the root word cyte means cell, so it means that's the study of cells, whereas uh, histology is a study of tissues. So somebody that's trained to see what these things, to know what these things look like under a microscope and do so and be able to compare normal versus potentially abnormal. Okay. Um, developmental anatomy, <laughs> we won't do a ton of that, maybe some references here and there, uh, but that basically refers to um, how things change over the course of uh, a lifetime of development, and that would include things like embryology, where would a, you know, developmentally the stages, say, a fetus goes through, and we really won't, much, we won't touch much on that at all in this class. Okay. So we're going to learn some ter uh, terminology. We're going to learn uh, what some things look like in other circumstances, not in this class, but you'll need to learn how things feel and how, and how to evaluate them uh, clinically as well. Physiology, uh, we, can we can divide it into uh, systems physiology. So basically take a system uh, like, for example, the renal system, which involves kidneys and bladder, and break down what the anatomy is and then what specifically they do, what's their job, how do they integrate into the body, how, why is it important, um, and how is it linked to other body systems, because ultimately all these things are linked together. Um, and in that, from that perspective, we do need to understand at the cellular level what kinds of cells make up some of these tissues and what it is that they're doing to understand the physiology and the metabolism and chemical reactions and what else is going on inside the body. Okay? Now, in order to understand physiology 
adequately, it means that we need to have uh, some, some background in some other basic science uh, principles, which is why uh, our next unit is going to be chemistry. I said we start from small and we work our way to big. So there is a little bit of, uh, I will concede that it, next week's lecture is everybody's least favorite lecture, or at least on average, and that's fine. It is what it is. We'll try to make it as painless as possible. Uh, but uh, that kind of stuff is foundational. We need to know how chemical reactions work. We need to know some basic physical principles, what pressures and, and electrical currents and things like that to be able to properly understand physiology. All right? And as I mentioned a couple of times, you really can't pull apart anatomy and physiology. They are interlinked. Uh, form and function are related to one another. Um, and so we, we learn both of them at the same time. Okay? So let's get into the structure of humans, human body. Okay? Um, much like how we are approaching this class as a, you know, from week 1 to 14, um, the body, you can break it down into, it's organized on a very, very small microscopic level, and then kind of layered on top of that is a slightly bigger level, and a slightly bigger level, and a slightly bigger level until we have an entire organism. So we have the chemical level where we're going to talk about you know, atoms, molecules, uh, and small stuff. Uh, we're going to talk about um, briefly cellular stuff, so this, the small parts of inside cells. Uh, and then we learn about what cells themselves look like. And then at the tissue level, we'll learn about what, what's, uh, what it looks like when you take a bunch of cells and you attach them all together with, with um, structural proteins and things like that and group it all together to make uh, um, one, uh, one entire tissue. You take some tissues and put them together and we have an organ. So an organ is an individual uh, unit that does a um, particular job. And then in certain circumstances, you'll have organ systems. So uh, multiple organs that, that are either directly linked or work closely together to accomplish interlinked or common goals. You put all that stuff together, all the organ systems next to each other and layered on top of one another, and now we have the entire human organism. Okay, so here will be an example of, uh, of that kind of uh, kind of approach. We have chemicals, so say atoms combine to make larger uh, things called molecules. Um, inside of uh, cells, we're going to have smaller components called organelles that are made up of you know, number of molecules. Uh, we take a bunch of cells together, we make a tissue. So the example here is, you know, have an, uh, an organelle, uh, like a mitochondria, that we have lots of in a smooth muscle cell. We take this one smooth muscle cell, we add a whole bunch of them together, and now we have a tissue, right, a smooth muscle tissue. Uh, and the smooth muscle tissue is just one part of a larger structure, in this, in this example being a blood vessel, so one of the tubes that carries blood around the body. The smooth muscle makes up the, just the middle layer of, uh, of uh, this particular blood vessel. Okay? Um, and then, uh, so that would be an organ, right? So you consider a blood vessel an organ because it's multiple tissues all collecting together in one, as one functional unit. And then we say, okay, well, that's a, a blood vessel. We have lots and lots and lots and lots of blood vessels. So we add them all together. They're all interlinked. We have um, arteries and veins, and in between them we have a heart. Uh, and all those things would essentially be collectively referred to as you know, the cardiovascular organ system. 
Okay, all interlinked together um, as a part of a larger human being. Okay, really, really simple, straightforward example. Um, it it uh, should hopefully make make uh, quite a bit of sense. So, humans are of course uh, a, a, um, a, a, an example of life. So, <clears throat> there's lots and lots and lots of different life forms on our planet. Um, there are some common elements amongst all life forms, including everything from single-celled bacteria or amoeba to you know small multicellular organisms um, like fungi or small organisms to bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more and more complex multicellular organisms. They all have some common themes. Okay, the common themes are that. They maintain boundaries, they're able to move, they're able to respond, they can digest, they have metabolism, they can excrete waste, they can reproduce, and they can grow. So let's talk briefly about each of those. Boundaries. And again, this is going to be different depending on the organism you're talking about. But let's say we're talking about something like a human. Okay? We have a bunch of different kinds of tissues in, in, around the body that makes up the, or, the whole organism. And those tissues need to be separated. Uh, so essentially, they need to be separated from one another. So we have barriers. Um, we have barriers between cells called membranes. And we have larger barriers that are multicellular, for example, like the skin, the integumentary system, which protects the entirety of the organism from the external environment. So you have some, a barrier that protects us from the outside. And then you have barriers that separate all the different subdivisions inside the body. Okay. Um, we need to be able to move. Of course, the, the, what's responsible for that in the human is the muscular system. Um, and so we'll, we'll have skeletal muscles that uh, generate force and pull on bones that act as levers and allow us to move and, and locomote uh, and you know, uh, articulate speech and chew and swallow and express ourselves and everything else that we need to do. Okay, so when you eventually talk about muscles, and that won't be in this class, but in a different class, you'll talk about things like contractility, which means that a cell like a muscle or a tissue like muscle tissue uh, can get shorter, which means it can, it can create, generate force and pull. Um, responsiveness. Uh, well, an organism needs to be able to, um, to detect and respond to particular stimuli. So let's say you're talking about um, a single-celled organism, okay? This is gonna look a lot simpler than our, you know, multiple interconnected complex mechanisms of, of detection and, and responsiveness to stimuli. But say a single-celled organism might be light sensitive. So it might travel, it might um, have detectors, rudimentary sensory detectors that will, uh, that will seek out or to detect light sources and move either towards or away from them depending on what it is they're trying to accomplish. You might have a similar kind of thing where it detects chemical concentration of with the, you know, the, the solution they're in, or the water they're in, or whatever the case is, okay? Not sure what that is. Um, now, the uh, humans will have similar, uh, similar mechanisms, but obviously much, much, much more complex, okay? So we have complex nervous system that has many, many, many types of nerve endings and receptors that will detect and constantly be monitoring all sorts of uh, information within our body and outside of our body at all times, okay? We're, we're gonna get to um, a term called homeostasis later on uh, to, in today's lecture, uh, but this is kind of the starting point for that, where our body, 
our body likes things just so, okay? It likes to maintain uh, a, 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 a continuous uh, preferable environment, right? So there's all sorts of variables inside the body that we want to control. Things like temperature and blood pressure and concentrations of, uh, of um, different, different um, electrolytes and chemicals, so sodium, potassium, chlorides, um, hydrogen, so relating to pH, all sugar, all sorts of other all sorts of variables that we're constantly monitoring through our uh, receptors, our ability to detect it, and then we have complex mechanisms that will be able to respond when those variables deviate away from the range that we want to keep them at. Okay, so we'll talk about homeostasis uh, shortly. Um, they need to be able to digest things. So digestion means breakdown. So we have a complex digestive system, a GI tract, that we take in food, uh, and then we break it down into smaller and smaller and smaller parts so that we can eventually take those parts, those building blocks, and use them, so absorb them into the body, into the bloodstream, distribute them to the various cells that need them, and have them the cells use them as, as necessary. So that goes for everything from energy sources like glucose to amino acids for building proteins to micronutrients, uh, for maintaining chemical reactions to everything that any cell in the body needs. We'll have to take it in, break it down, and then absorb it. Okay? Um, and then uh, that would be, the that kind of takes us to the chemical reaction part of what's going on in the body. So the word metabolism, I'm sure you've all heard of before. It's usually referred to in the context of things like diet and exercise. Uh, but metabolism, what the definition is, is uh, sum total of all of the chemical reactions that are occurring in the body all at once. So your body is basically uh, a big, uh, you know, a big chemical reaction that's going on all the time. Um, you have, you can break it down basically into two fairly simple parts. You have the uh, reactions that are anabolic. Okay, anabolic means building up. So it means taking smaller substances and putting them together to make bigger things. And then you have catabolism. If something's catabolic, it means it's breaking it down. So you're taking something that's larger and breaking it down into its component parts. So you're taking a protein, breaking it down to amino acids, for example. Or you're taking a big complex carbohydrate and breaking it down into simple sugars, those kinds of things. So all the catabolism, and all the anabolism that's happening in your body at any given time collectively is called your metabolism. Okay? Of course, there will be some things that we get into our body or that we make uh, as, as waste products that we don't want to keep. So we want to excrete them. So we need an ability to excrete wastes uh, of normal metabolism and waste from digestion. So we have several systems in our body uh, that will help do that. Does anybody know which body systems are responsible for excretion? Uh, well, so the endocrine system is, is is really mostly for communication. So we have two communication oh, systems. No, That's okay. It's okay. So we'll talk about it. So we have two communication systems in the body. Uh, the nervous system, which is basically a direct electrical connection system, send a message from one part of the body to the other. The endocrine system is a chemical messenger system. So hormones are made in a gland in one part of the body. They'll travel through blood and body fluids and bind receptors and act on uh, cells somewhere else in the body. Okay? You know any other examples? Excretion. How do we get rid of? How do we get rid of waste? Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Which one? 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, so similar words, I suppose. Uh, so the GI tract. Okay. So let's let's the GI tract. Right. The, the digestive system is fairly straightforward. We take in food. We break down the food into subsequent building blocks. We absorb what we want or we can absorb, and then everything else passes through as waste. Right. As stool. That's one. Uh, how else can the body get rid of waste? Perfect. Urinary tract, right? It's the renal system. So the, what the kidneys basically do, the simplest level, is they are constantly filtering your blood, uh, and they filter it, and they pull out things that we don't want to keep in the blood. We concentrate it heavily in a waste product called urine, and we excrete it. Okay? Any other ways to get stuff out of the body? Respiratory system. Perfect. What are you getting rid of? Perfect. So the two major waste products that we get rid of in the respiratory system are actually carbon dioxide and, believe it or not, water. If you ever breathed on a piece of glass or a mirror, you know that it fogs up. It's because we are constantly excreting uh, water, which is actually a metabolic waste product of energy production. Although we sometimes obviously don't think of it always as a waste product, but it is. Uh, and then anything else? One more. Sorry. Skin, perfect, exactly. So we can excrete, uh, we can excrete stuff out of our skin through our, our sweat glands. Very good. Okay, <laughs> we need to be able to reproduce, and that basically takes on two forms: uh, a micro form and a more macro form. Um, we need to be able to reproduce cells. So you, the cells that you have now are obviously not the exact same cells you're going to have a week or a year or several years from now. Um, various parts of your body at different rates are constantly turning over cells. There will be cell damage, cells get old, um, things happen, and the cells essentially need to be uh, turned over. So, so cells will die and they'll be replaced by new cells. We use a process called mitosis for cell division to replace old cells with new ones. So that's considered reproduction uh, on a small scale. On a larger scale, of course, we're talking about organismal reproduction. So we have um, production of gametes, sperm and eggs from males and females, uh, and combining them together to, to reproduce an uh, entirely new organism. And we will talk about that in our last unit. And then also, lastly, growth. Okay? So um, we need to be able to grow cells, grow tissues, grow entire limbs, grow entire bodies you know, for certain periods of our life. So um, on various different scales and levels, um, the cells and the tissues in the body need to need to be able to get bigger. Okay. Um, now humans are obviously um, enormous, complex, multicellular organisms. We're made up of many, 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 many cells, uh, and so in order to stay alive, um, the individual cell, the individual cells themselves, have to stay alive, and then this, the tissues that they make up collectively have to stay alive, and then the combination of all this stuff working together has to maintain life. Uh, so, so things are um, complexly interrelated to, at the most simple level, support the, the life of the cells themselves. So the cells have to get everything that they need uh, in order to, to survive. And of course, those, uh, this, this, the various organ systems are going to be very much interrelated. Here's a fairly, you know, fairly simplistic example of the interrelationship between a few different organ systems. And kind of the linkage between them is going to be blood and fluid uh, movement throughout the body. So let's say we have the digestive system, right? We talked about that briefly. Um, you're going to eat food. 
uh, eat food stuff, so big, big stuff. Uh, our body, through a few different uh, ways, um, through mechanical and chemical means, we digest the food. Digestion means you break it down into smaller and smaller and smaller components to eventually we get to these small absorbable building blocks. So we can absorb nutrients from the gut, the GI tract, the digestive system, into the bloodstream. From there, uh, nutrients will either be taken to uh, a particular organ, like the liver, to be processed or stored, or it'll be distributed throughout the bloodstream to the entire body. So, the, so all the cells, all the living cells throughout the body get all of the nutrients and, uh, and stuff that they need to, to live and survive and thrive. Of course, if you're talking about distributing stuff through the blood, then really you're talking about the cardiovascular system. So you're talking about the heart and its ability to pump blood through the systemic circulation and then take it back through the venous circulation uh, and, and continue that cycle over and over and over. All right. Um, well, really, if you're talking about sending nutrients to cells, we don't exactly send nutrients directly from the cardiovascular system, from the bloodstream to cells. What you really do is you have to move it from the blood into the fluid around and between the cells, which is called the interstitial fluid, and you'll learn more about that later. Uh, and then it moves from there into the cells, okay? All along here, we are uh, using the blood as well to not only move nutrients that we need to cells, but taking waste products away from cells. And those are the examples we, we talked about a couple minutes ago, where, for example, cells that are, cells that are metabolically active, that are undergoing uh, metabolism and chemical reactions, require oxygen. And so we use a respiratory system to bring oxygen in, and our blood, especially through red blood cells and hemoglobin, to transport that oxygen around the body to where you need it. Same time, those metabolically active cells are going to be producing carbon dioxide as a waste product, and so we have to transport that through the blood back to the lungs to be to be um, uh, excreted that way. And as we mentioned, the kidneys are basically a, a giant filter for the blood at all times, and so we filter out the stuff that we don't want to keep. We concentrate it into urine, and we excrete that. Okay, simplistic examples, but again, all very much interrelated. So let's briefly go through the uh, 11 organ systems and then a couple of brief things and then we'll probably take a, a bit of a break, okay? And this is by no means meant to be comprehensive. It's just a very basic introduction, okay? Um, I'm going to try to learn some more about you guys in a little bit, but uh, everybody comes in to here to an intro anatomy class having different backgrounds. Some of you might have a solid background in anatomy. Some of you might, this might be the very first time you've ever seen anything like this. So we have to start from, you know, the common denominator, right, the most basic. So, uh, integumentary system. Integumentary system uh, means uh, basically skin, hair, and nails. Um, if you had to pick one word that describes the function of the integumentary system, what do you think it would be? Perfect. Absolutely. Right. So it protects us from the outside world. Uh, it serves as a barrier to, to stop you know, uh, microorganisms, bacteria, etc., from getting into the body. Perfect. So we have multiple layers of protection. Um, it's also protection uh, to prevent stuff from getting out of the body. So for example, <laughs> the skin is very, very important in maintaining the water concentration of the body. 
So people that lose big patches of skin in say like a big rat, like a big road rash, or if they lost a lot of skin traumatically, or a burn or something like that, um, those people are at risk of losing tremendous amounts of water becoming dehydrated, in addition to it being an infection risk because now stuff can also get in. Um, there are some other functions of the skin, of course, too. It's kind of the, uh, the seat the, for uh, a lot of our peripheral um, nerve endings, right? Our, our peripheral receptors uh, for things like pain, pressure, et cetera, that are, we're trying to detect and learn about our environment to help protect us. Uh, and then one other thing, um, this is the starting point for our creation of vitamin D. So um, we can get vitamin D in the diet, but we can also make our own vitamin D if skin is exposed to sunlight. So if that happens, then certain cells will be able to start making the precursor for vitamin D, and it'll go through some other processes in the liver and the kidney and eventually be usable. But uh, it all starts in the skin. Skeletal system, okay, our bones and joints um, gives us a framework, right? Uh, other, without bones, we'd just be a big bag of goo. Um, it gives us a, a structural framework. Uh, they also create um, levers so that muscles can attach themselves and pull on them to create movement and force and our ability to, again, communicate and, and locomote and do everything that we need to do uh, with movement. Um, there's also one, uh, sorry, two other really important functions of bones. One is that they serve as a reservoir for certain nutrients and minerals. Um, the usual example everyone knows is calcium. There are some other things like phosphate and some other stuff that they store as well. And the last thing that's really important that sometimes people forget is that the bones uh, are also where all of our blood cells are made. Okay, so inside the uh, most bones are, are hollow inside, so you have what's called um, a medullary cavity. Uh, and inside some bones, not all, but certain ones uh, that have red bone marrow, that's where we make all of our red blood cells that transport oxygen, all of our white blood cells that are part of our immune system to protect us, and all of our platelets, which are for clotting so that we don't bleed to death. Okay, so important function of bones as well. Muscles, again, we talked about this briefly earlier, but muscles uh, allow um, force production so that we can uh, maintain posture and move and express ourselves and uh, reproduce and swallow and all those important things. Uh, also importantly, produces heat. Right? I'm sure everyone has experienced shivering before. Right? So you're cold and you get an involuntary you know, muscle contraction. That's your body trying to thermoregulate, maintain your temperature by producing heat. Nervous system. <laughs> so nervous system is one of our two communication um, uh, mechanisms in the body. It's our direct electrical communication system. So it basically consists of um, a central control center in the brain, um, a highway of, of, of nerves, pa nerve pathways in the uh, spinal cord, and all the peripheral nerves that travel to and from the sp uh, spinal cord to and from the extremities. It's reaching kind of all parts of the body. So through the nervous system, our, uh, we have the ability to take in information from our environment and from various parts of our body to integrate that in the brain, and the brain is able to, to um, interpret that as it will and produce an output uh, and, and a response that can control the various different organs and systems and parts of the body. Okay, endocrine system. Uh, endocrine system is there are there are other communication system in the body, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, this time it's a chemical communication system. So we um, 
use glands that are going to secrete hormones. The hormones will be uh, chemicals that are produced in one part of the body and travel through blood and other body fluids to act on cells on another part of the body. Okay? And this goes hand in hand with the nervous system. So um, it's very much interlinked with the, uh, with the nervous system as makes, should hopefully make sense because they're both integral communication systems in the body. Okay, cardiovascular system, again, uh, we have the heart, uh, which is the pump in the middle. The heart is really two pumps side by side. Um, one is responsible for pumping relatively deoxygenated blood to the lungs, and the other is for taking that newly oxygenated blood and pumping it out to all the rest of the body. And then, of course, we do we pump blood away from the heart. It's through arteries, which are bigger and thicker and more elastic, and then when you get out to the body, the blood will kind of slow down, lower pressure, and then we bring it back uh, to the heart again through veins. And we'll learn all about those later. Um, the lymphatic system. Okay, um, The lymphatic system uh, is interlinked with the immune system because it's part of our, one of our protective mechanisms. But the basic, the basic, uh, the basic explanation for the lymphatic system is, um, I talked briefly earlier about the fluid that's kind of outside of cells and tissues uh, called the interstitial fluid. Well, that fluid is, uh, is basically needs to be cleaned and recycled regularly. So what the lymphatic system does is it takes that fluid and it draws it up through lymphatic vessels that go in one direction only, basically back towards you know, the, the trunk. Uh, and it cleans it, it filters it through these structures called lymph nodes. And lymph nodes uh, are, um, are important because they're uh, essentially homes for a number of immune cells. So we use this as an opportunity to clean up the, the lymph, the fluid that's, that's, uh, that's drawn up into the lymphatic system. So if there's debris from broken down cells or there's live active bacteria or other, uh, um, uh, other pathogens, the uh, lymph nodes are, are often able to take them up and, and kill them before they're able to cause any other harm. Right. <laughs> Respiratory system, uh, two basic jobs, uh, getting oxygen in so it can be distributed to cells to, in order for them to, to, metabolize, uh, to, to um, undergo their metabolism, and to get waste products, most importantly, carbon dioxide and water out. And the digestive system. So the digestive system performs, surprise, surprise, digestion. Uh, which is again the process of taking big stuff and breaking it down into small stuff that we can absorb from the GI tract into the bloodstream so it's usable all throughout the body. And as you mentioned earlier, the urinary system is basically, the kidneys are basically, the two of them are basically giant filters that are constantly filtering the blood as it's circulating through the body, concentrating the waste products that we want to get rid of into urine and then excreting urine from the body uh, so that we don't have to hang on to it in our bloodstream. Um, as a side note, um, you're familiar with the general idea of pH, right? Acid base balance. Um, does anybody have a general, so just so we're on the same page, um, pH scale goes from what to what? 1 to 14. 0 to 14, right? 0 to 14, but, but good. Um, so neutral, pure water is 7.0. Does anybody know what the pH of blood is? It's actually a little more basic. 7.4. Okay, so so human blood is just slightly basic. 
but we also need to maintain it within a very, very tight window. So the range that's acceptable is 7.35 to 7.45. If you get outside of that at all, things start breaking down really quickly. Metabolism in the body changes, cellular uh, uh, functions change, and it's not a good scene. Okay, so people, uh, the, the, the body functions don't uh, they, they don't work the way they're supposed to. So we have a lot of mechanisms in place to really tightly regulate pH. Um, and through mechanisms that, that you'll discuss eventually later, the kidneys and the lungs are actually the two most powerful mechanisms that we have to regulate uh, blood pH. So the kidneys are, are the most important long-term regulator of blood pH because they can essentially decide to, uh, to um, excrete hydrogen ions or retain them or, or, or the same thing with bicarbonate. So you can manipulate pH that way. Okay. And then we have male and female reproductive system. You'll learn about those too, um, again, for reproduction of the, of the species. Okay. Uh, a couple more real basic things and we will take our break. All right. Um, so humans need a lot of things to go right in order to, uh, to survive. Um, a lot of things that we need just the right amount of. Too much or too little of, of certain amounts of these things can be harmful or even deadly. Uh, so um, we need lots and lots and lots of different kinds of nutrients. That means both macronutrients, things we need lots of, like carbohydrates, lipids, proteins, and micronutrients, things we need some of, so like vitamins, minerals, etc., electrolytes. Uh, we, of course, need lots of oxygen. Uh, we need lots of water. Right? The water is the the um, the, the solvent uh, that is uh, part of that is um, the solvent for the, the all the solutions that are going on in the body. Our blood is a solution. Our our body fluids are solutions, and water is the basis for all that. Without water, uh, there's no possible way that that our life form would would ever exist at all. Uh, we need to maintain a normal body temperature, and of course, we have lots of built-in mechanisms to be able to do that, um, but of course, uh, also um, behaviorally, we'll do things to, to modify our, our body temperature as well. And appropriate atmospheric pressure, which seems a little strange at first, but that relates back to the oxygen thing, okay? So we're used to a particular uh, um, concentration of oxygen in our atmosphere. Does anybody know uh, the air we breathe, right? What makes up most of it? Good. 79% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, small amounts of carbon dioxide, and a bunch of other things. Um, so that is kind of the sweet spot for us. That's what it is uh, all throughout our atmospheric air. However, um, we have to have enough of it present to be able to get enough of it in. Um, when, uh, when somebody uh, goes higher and higher and higher in altitude, we start referring to the air as being thin. Right? What's really, what you're really describing is a decreasing pressure of the molecules of gas and their presence uh, in, the, uh, in the atmosphere. So um, if you live your life in and around uh, sea level-ish, where you're used to a certain pressure and the value is 760 millimeters per mercury, and that number doesn't matter for purposes, but just it exists. And you go higher and higher and higher, so you decide without real significant uh, exposure or time spent there, you said, I'm going to go climb Mount Everest, okay? And as you ascend higher up, the vast majority of humans would need supplemental oxygen to make it up to the top because the air is, quote unquote, thinner as you go higher in altitude. Unless you're a Sherpa and you live your life in that altitude and you can tolerate it, 
all day long, uh, most of us would, would, uh, would die going to that height. Okay, as I said, nutrients will need a whole bunch of different things uh, in a whole bunch of different uh, quantities. Our macronutrients are the things we need lots and lots of, and our micronutrients are the things we need some of to survive, but less than macros. Okay, <clears throat> oxygen again, the body can only survive for a few minutes without oxygen. Um, anybody, that, well, the number that's usually given is um, if uh, um, cells of the nervous system, like the brain, are starved of oxygen for five minutes, then they'll undergo um, permanent damage. Okay. Again, water, important for all the chemical reactions in the body, is by far the most abundant chemical in the body. It's the basis for pretty much everything that goes on. Uh, body temperature. Um, normal is a, funny, uh, is a funny word as it relates to um, values in the human body. Um, normal is often a range. Okay, so when we say something, this is the normal concentration, this is the normal temperature or pressure, um, there's usually an acceptable range above and below that. So we say normal human body temperature is 37 degrees, but the reality is that you can, you can usually go somewhat below and somewhat above that and be, and be normal for an individual. But that's the average normal for across the entire population. Okay? Um, of course, if you go too high above that, you can cause... Um, significant damage, and if you go too far below that, you can cause significant damage as well. So we need um, a nice happy medium right in the middle. Okay, that's a good spot for us to take a break. So let's uh, take a quick break from now until 20 after, and then we will come back and talk about homeostasis. All right, so uh, next, a uh, term I already used kind of briefly is homeostasis. We're talking about um, control mechanisms and stuff. Um, so homeostasis is this general term for our ability to, to maintain um, a particular uh, stable condition uh, relating to a, a variable or a number of variables. So um, we can choose a few different you know, examples, but there are many, many, many examples in the body. Um, anything that has to do with a temperature, a pressure, a concentration, uh, things like that, that we want to maintain within a very specific range, <coughs> will use this kind of um, idea of homeostasis where we want to have mechanisms in place to keep it where we want it. Okay? So, how does homeostasis work? Right, we have to pick our our variable. So let's say, for example, we're talking about um, let's use the example of uh, blood sugar. Okay, so we want to maintain uh, blood sugar levels at a very particular range. And for us right now, the number that is specifically what needs to be at doesn't particularly matter. Okay, but there's going to be a, a window of, uh, of a range where you want your blood sugar levels to be. Now there will be um, there will be sensory receptors in the body that will detect alterations in the blood sugar levels. Okay, So you don't want the blood sugar to get too high because that can be harmful. And you don't want it to get too low because then you don't have enough blood uh, sugar available to you when you need it. That can be harmful as well. So we want to essentially have mechanisms in place that are going to be able to detect variations from the level where we want it and then enact a response that's going to keep it where we need it. Okay, so any kind of mechanism that's going to be responsible for control of homeostasis is going to have three basic parts: a receptor, a control center, and an effector. Okay, so <coughs> the receptor is some kind of sensory 
um, detection mechanism that's going to be monitoring uh, the status of whatever variable it is that we're talking about. So blood sugar level or blood pressure or temperature or whatever it is, it's going to be monitoring this basically at all times. And if it detects uh, an aberration, okay, so a, um, a, um, a straying from the range where we want it, it's going to send that information to the control center, which in many, many, many cases is going to be the nervous system. Okay, the brain, the brain stem, or some other part of the nervous system. It can also be the endocrine system. It's heavily involved in these homeostatic mechanisms, mechanisms as well, or it could be some other parts of the body. But it's largely going to be one of those two things. So the receptor detects a change. It's going to send that information to the control center where it's going to decide, and I use that term loosely, okay, not a conscious decision, but it's going to be an automatic mechanism where it's going to essentially decide to enact some kind of response because we've had a deviation away from where, uh, the, where we want uh, that particular variable to be and we need to bring it back down to where we want it. Okay? And we do that through the use of an effector. So an effector is often going to be either a part of the nervous system again, so some kind of neural connection from the brain to a different part of the body, or it's going to be a mechanism, a hormone release through the endocrine system or something like that that is going to essentially affect a response. It's going to act on a tissue or an organ or a gland or something that is going to have the ability to manipulate that variable that has skewed away from where we want it back to where we want it. Okay, so let's let's use um, a specific example. Okay, so uh, I said blood sugar. So let's say that blood sugar has gotten too high. Okay, um, I don't expect you to, to have a handle on this yet, but um, someone who has um, well, sorry, let's take a regular person. Okay, so a regular person, if your blood sugar gets too high then that will be detected by receptors and it's going to communicate with control center and the effector is going to be that the pancreas releases insulin. Okay, does anybody know what the job of insulin is? Yeah, that's a great guess. It, it definitely is. Right? So what it does is uh, insulin helps push glucose from the blood into cells. So in many, many, many cells in the body, um, it doesn't matter how high your blood glucose is, it could be sky high, but if, the, if there's no insulin present, uh, the cells will still effectively be starving because there's no mechanism to, to move glucose from the blood into the cells where they need it. So that's the job of insulin. Uh, when it's released from the beta cells of the pancreas, it, it, it pushes glucose from the blood into the cells themselves. So, yeah? Isn't the difference between the two types of diabetes where one is where the cell Definitely right. So yeah, the first one you described is a type two, and the and the second one is a type one. So I don't, you, you're right. I don't want to get too far into the weeds on that right now because we'll go on a, a long, long tangent. But it's correct. But the point is, under normal circumstances, that's what you want to happen. Okay. So what we just described there is essentially is uh, is a uh, homeostatic control. Um, now the the other kind of the next extension of that is understanding that what we just described is also called a negative feedback loop. So it's a variation of one of by far the most common mechanism for regulating um, uh, um, homeostasis in the body. So the, the point of a negative feedback loop is it's the same kind of idea as our, our regulators for homeostasis. So you have something's detected, 
uh, it goes through that information goes to the control center. The control center enacts a response through the effector, and then, in theory, the effector is going to change that variable back to where you want it to be, such that the whole loop is shut off. So basically, let's use that example of blood sugar again. If it works properly, blood sugar goes up. That's detected. Insulin is released. Insulin drives sugar out of the blood into the cells, so blood sugar goes back down. So now those same receptors, which initially detected high blood sugar, are no longer detecting high blood sugar, and they have no need to further signal that increase or, or, or continued release of insulin. So it's effectively the change that the, the, the loop makes shuts itself off. Okay, So that's a negative feedback loop. And that's far and away the most common mechanism in the body that we have for regulating all of our variables, from concentrations to pressures to temperatures to whatever. Okay? Now, <coughs> um, well, that's the exact example we use right there. Uh, blood glucose and the release of insulin from the pancreas. Okay? We could also use, um, let me jump ahead one second here. Um, here's another example we could, we could use um, where we're talking about thermoregulation, so temperature regulation. And on the top, you're going to have one change where temperature, I believe, goes up, and the bottom, you're going to have a change where temperature goes down. And they both use negative feedback loops, so let's kind of work through each of them. Um, let's say on the top example there, <coughs> temperature goes up. Okay, body temperature goes up for whatever reason. You are in an environment with increased ambient temperature. You are exercising and creating heat output or whatever. It doesn't particularly matter. But <clears throat> that change, that increase in your body temperature, uh, is going to be detected by thermoreceptors. Okay, so um, uh, temperature-sensitive receptors that are, in, that are in various parts of your body, including the brain, the central nervous system, and in the skin, so cutaneous receptors, that say, hey, it's getting warm in here. Okay? They're going to send that information uh, to the control center, which happens to be in the brainstem, uh, and the control center is going to send information out to the effectors. And in this case, if you're too hot, what are the, the, the effectors in the body going to be? What actual tissue or gland or, or, or whatever is going to change that increase in temperature? Well, one of the things we do is we stimulate sweat glands. So sweat glands are stimulated to start releasing sweat. And when we sweat, they're essentially we're releasing not just water, also electrolytes, but essentially we're releasing water from the surface of the skin it's going to evaporate away, and as it evaporates away, it conducts away heat. So we're essentially losing heat uh, through, that, uh, through that mechanism of sweating. So in theory, what happens is your temperature has gone up. The, detect the receptors detect that. They send that information to the brain. Brain cells, sweat, sweat glands, start sweating. That happens, and then those same receptors in the skin detect that now decrease in temperature as you start to bring your temperature back down and they'll send that information to the brain uh, which says okay sweat glands you don't need to do that anymore let's shut this whole thing off so that's a negative feedback loop the whole thing could work in the other direction if for example you are not now hot but you're cold so you're now in an environment where it's it's cooler than usual and the same types of receptors are going to detect that change so they send that information to the control center in the brain. The brain says, okay, let's do something about this. Let's send information through the effectors. And in this case, the most common effectors we're gonna use are skeletal muscles. So your muscles that you think of when you think of the muscles of the body. 
uh, which are largely voluntary, but our brain can make them uh, contract involuntarily, okay? And that's what happens when you shiver. So your brain is telling your muscles to shiver, and shivering essentially is small, repeated muscle contractions. And the reason we're doing this is because when muscles contract, they're metabolically active, and a byproduct of that high metabolism is heat production. So the, you've detected this decrease in temperature, brain tells the muscles, contract, release some heat, and in theory, if it's enough to bring your temperature back up, those exact same nerve endings will detect this now increase in temperature and tell the brain, okay, you can stop shivering now. Again, cutting off the, the negative feedback loop. That makes sense? All right, very good. <laughs> so again, the vast, vast, vast majority of, of uh, variables in the body are controlled in this way. <clears throat> there are a small handful of examples that don't follow this pattern, uh, but instead follow what's called a positive feedback loop. So positive feedback loop is instead of the, uh, the, um, the end results uh, of, the, of, the, of the output shutting off the loop, the, in this case, the end result perpetuates that loop. It makes it happen more and more and more and more. Okay? So there's a very small handful of examples of how this works. One is labor and delivery of a baby. Okay? So <laughs> essentially, um, uh, initiation of contractions of the uterus uh, is through release of a hormone called oxytocin, uh, and the contraction of the uterus itself causes release of oxytocin. So initiate labor. Okay? Uh, earlier on, the contractions are less intense and further apart. And as labor progresses, the contractions get closer together and much more intense. Because as the oxytocin is released, uterus contracts. As uterus contracts, oxytocin is released. And on and on and on we go until we get to the end result uh, where it's no longer needed. Yeah? Can induce labor? Totally different drug. <laughs> totally different. Totally different drug. Uh, there are there are synthetic medications that can induce labor, uh, but it's called pitocin. Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so um, <laughs> another example would be um, clot formation. So in form, I think that's the yeah the visual here. So in formation of a clot, uh, what you want is it not to just clot a little bit, but you want it to clot enough that it snowballs into a bigger and bigger clot until it gets the job done. So the way this works is. Um, and at some point, you guys will talk about um, inflammation and, and chemical signaling. But the stimulus for this to be kicked off is damage to a local wall of a blood vessel. Okay? And remember that this doesn't have to necessarily be a big blood vessel. Um, you have small blood vessels permeating all the tissue of your body because every tissue needs to get nutrients and oxygen and wick away waste products. So if you create any kind of tissue damage whatsoever, <coughs> you're also going to be damaging <coughs> some level of blood vessels. Excuse me. <coughs> so when you do that, um, it's going to release chemicals. And these chemicals are going to signal other chemicals to come, uh, either attract them to that area. That process is called chemotaxis. Don't have to write that down. You'll, come, you'll get run into that at some point later. But the, through chemotaxis, <coughs> these chemicals and platelets that are involved in clotting are going to be signaled to come to that area. Okay? They're going to start clumping together and making uh, a clot. Now, the process of making that clot actually releases more chemicals which attract more platelets 
and we further this loop. So we attract more platelets, which clot, which releases more chemicals, which attracts more platelets, which clot, which releases more chemicals. And we continue that cycle until the clot formation is complete. It becomes a complete, uh, um, a, 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 um, a continuous plug uh, that plugs the hole that where the blood vessel was damaged, and that cycle is eventually shut off. Okay? So, there we go unnecessary animation. Um, now, ultimately, why does this matter? I mean, this matters because this is how our body uh, regulates uh, all the basic, all its basic functions, but this also relates kind of eventually into when you start studying disease. Uh, because at a really simplistic level, um, disease is essentially um, disturbance of homeostasis. So if for some reason our body um, loses the ability to, uh, to maintain homeostasis of a particular variable, that is essentially a disease process. And it starts cascading us down a path where there can be uh, damage to tissues or this um, ongoing process that we um, are of dysfunction that we are eventually going to see signs and symptoms and label it a disease or a disorder. All right, so that's a very broad statement, I realize, but um, that's really more talk for a um, pathology type kind of a class. Okay, are there any questions about homeostasis, negative feedback loops, positive feedback loops, etc.? Okay, very good. So let's move on to the second set of slides. This is really more about uh, anatomy and terminology and some some basics uh, orientation of the of the body. All right. First thing we need to know <laughs> is anatomical position, uh, and then we can learn some directional terms. Okay, so now uh, if you look at me right here, this is anatomical position. It's a standard position that everybody has to know. If a person is standing upright, okay, feet not necessarily together, but at least pointing forward, you're up tall, your head's straight, your eyes are looking forward, arms at your sides, palms facing forward. This is anatomical. Okay. If you're ever, if I'm ever asking you uh, um, of uh, directional um, references, or when you're learning gross anatomy, you'll often use a lot of directional terms. Everything always relates back to that position. Okay, and that matters, right? Because, um, well, I'll give you some examples in in a little bit. But things can get tricky when you start repositioning the body, and we don't reposition all of our terms based on how the person is oriented. We always go back to that standard anatomical position. All right? So <laughs> um, also remember that when you're referring to anatomy, you're referring to the anatomy of the subject, right? not of your viewpoint. So for example, uh, if I'm talking about this person right here and I point to this side over here, is this the left or the right side? That is the right side because it's his right side, not your right side. Okay? Perfect. So, from that anatomical position, we can start learning uh, reference uh, reference points and uh, and directional comparisons. So, <coughs> these will most often they'll exist in pairs, right? So you have um, uh, things that are in opposition, right? Opposites. So the first pair is superior versus inferior. Okay, superior is also sometimes known as cranial, which means head, up towards the head. Uh, and inferior is often uh, sometimes referred to as caudal, which technically means tail, down towards the bottom. But we'll get, for our class, I'm almost always going to say superior and inferior. Okay, so superior means up higher, okay, more towards the top of the body. Inferior means down towards the bottom of the body. Okay, now, 
Um, if I, so, so right now let's use the example, okay? My nose is what in relation to my belly button? My nose is superior, superior to my belly button, okay? My knee is what to my belly button? Inferior, okay? Down below. Good. Now, does that change if I'm lying like this? Okay? No, makes no difference, okay? Because we always refer back to anatomical position. So even though I'm reoriented, my nose is still superior to my belly button, etc., etc., etc. All right. Uh, the next is anterior and posterior. Okay, so anterior means more towards the front, and posterior means more towards the back. Okay, so my belly button is anterior to my spine. Okay, um, my uh, say my uh, calf, right? So my calf, my gastric muscles are posterior to my shin, my, my shin bone, my tibia, okay? Again, makes no difference whatsoever if I'm doing this, if I'm kicking, if I'm legs up in the air, it makes no difference whatsoever. The reference point is always back to this. Um, some terms that you actually might run into, especially when you get into some spine anatomy, um, ventral is a synonym for anterior. So ventral means, again, towards the front. And dorsal is the same as posterior. It's towards the back. OK? <clears throat> Next is medial and lateral. So medial means towards the midline. So there's another term for the midline that we're going to learn uh, in a couple of minutes. But for right now, let's assume that it's uh, a vertical line that runs straight down the middle of my body, right? Right down the nose, between the eyes, straight down the middle, OK? So that's the midline. Something that's closer towards that line is going to be medial. Something that is further away from that midline is going to be lateral. Okay? So, for example, um, my nipple is lateral to my sternum. Okay? My nose is what compared to my ear? Medial. Medial, right? So my nose is medial to my ear. Very good. Okay? My eye is what compared to my nose? Lateral. Exactly. Okay, perfect. All right. Now, where this gets a little bit tricky sometimes, again, going back to this well of, of positioning, um, is, uh, well, let, let's, let's do this, okay? In certain, in certain uh, extremities, you actually draw a new midline. So if I say I'm looking at my hand, I'm actually going to draw a new midline right down the center of my third finger. Okay, so you'll see that at some point. But let's use that example again. Okay, my pinky finger is what compared to my uh, to my middle finger? Lateral, right? Okay. Now, how about now? Same. Okay. Doesn't change. Doesn't change. Doesn't change. Doesn't change. Doesn't change. Okay. Always back to anatomical. Uh, very good. Uh, sometimes you also see the term intermediate. Um, means you have two reference structures, and intermediate means it's between the two. Okay? Very good. 
when we start talking about limbs or long structures, you can use the terms proximal, which means closer to the origin, and distal, which means farther away from the origin. So usually, let's say we'll talk about a limb. Okay. So, right, if this is the attachment point here of my upper limb to my torso, then my fingertips are what compared to my elbow? Distal. Good. My fingertips are distal to my elbow. Okay. My shoulder is what to my elbow? Would it also be distal? Nope. My shoulder, it's closer to the trunk. Oh, okay. So my shoulder is proximal to the elbow. So everything is, so this is proximal, right? This is where the attachment to the trunk. And everything is more and more and more distal. As we come back in towards the trunk, it's more and more and more and more and more proximal. Okay, so when you're comparing reference structures, make sure you don't get tripped up that way. All right, uh, last one. Oh, sorry. You can also sometimes use so um, point of origin or beginning of a longer structure. So, for example, if you talk about something like um, a blood vessel or the, the the GI tract. Okay, so the GI tract, right? The digestive system is basically uh, one long tube. It's got some obvious. Uh, um, uh, changes to it along the way, but it's basically one big long tube from mouth all the way down to the anus. Okay, So if you consider the origin, the mouth, and the end, the anus, uh, as you move farther and farther down, you're moving farther and farther distal, even though along the way it's twisting and turning and doing all sorts of uh, changes that way. Make sense? Okay. Um, <clears throat> last one would be superficial versus deep. Okay, and this relates to the surface uh, of the body, so the skin versus what lies underneath it. Okay, so <laughs> the skin is superficial to the muscles, right? Skeletal muscles. Um, the bone of my arm, right? So my humerus is deep to my bicep. It's deep to my skin. Okay, it's closer into the to the middle, to the inside. <laughs> All right, <clears throat> okay, so let's start dividing the body into chunks. Um, the two first major divisions are the axial part of the body and then the appendicular part of the body. So the axial uh, part of the body means stuff right down the middle, okay, the axis. So the head, neck, and trunk. And the trunk is also subdivided into torso and abdomen and pelvis, but we're gonna get there in a second. Appendicular means the appendages, the things that branch off of the axial part of the body. So our limbs, right? Our upper limbs, our arms, and our lower limbs, our legs. Okay? So within those, we can, we'll also have some, uh, some terms for designating specific areas, and this is where it starts to get a little bit more complicated. Okay? So <clears throat> this might seem like a lot for the first day, but uh, you have to know all these at some point. So why not now? Okay? Um, the, this, there are some parts of anatomy where you just need to start memorizing and re-memorizing and re-memorizing. So uh, I suggest starting soon because uh, it's probably going to show up on your first assignment and it's probably going to show up on your first test. So you may as well get going now. Um, so let's go, from, uh, let's go from top to bottom. Okay? If you have any uh, background in anatomy, you're going to recognize a bunch of these words uh, and make it easier. If you don't, then that's fine. Just everybody has to start somewhere. Okay, so <laughs> does anybody know what the term cephalic means? 
Cephalic is actually a synonym for uh, superior, right? But what cephalic means is head, okay? Cephalic means head. So um, within the, the region of the head, we've got a few different other regions, right? Frontal refers to the forehead. Orbital refers to the eye. Nasal, of course, the nose. Oral, of course, the mouth. And mental is the chin. Okay, and when you guys do head and neck anatomy, you're going to get even more in depth. But that's the that's the real basic starting point. Okay, let's stick with the uh, axial uh, body for for a bit first. Okay, the neck, right? The medical term for the neck is the cervical region. And then below that, or inferior to that, we have the thoracic region. And in the thoracic region, so the thora the thorax is basically from here, from collarbones to the bottom of the ribcage. Okay, so in the thoracic region. We also have some other smaller regions. First is the sternal, so dead center, right? Overlying the sternum, the breastbone. Um, axillary, axillary region is the armpit. Okay, super important area. Lots and lots of important nerves and blood vessels there. Uh, and mammary, mammary means the breast region. Okay. Uh, um, inferior to the thoracic region, we have the abdominal pelvic region. Okay, so um, when we talk about cavities, technically everything below the diaphragm uh, to the ba to the basically the the bottom of the pelvis is one kind of continuous open cavity. Uh, there's no real solid barriers that separate anything. Uh, so sometimes you'll hear it referred to as the abdominal pelvic region, but let's create an imaginary line basically where the belt line is at the top of the pelvis, okay? So everything above that up to the diaphragm below the ribcage is going to be the abdominal region. Everything below that belt line into kind of the base of the pelvis is going to be the pelvic region, okay? So the abdominal region we're going to actually subdivide into quadrants in a little bit, so we'll get there. Um, although you can call the region right around the belly button the umbilical region. Uh, when you get into the pelvis, uh, the specific term for the groin, basically where the, where the leg meets the pelvis, is the inguinal region. Okay? Uh, pubic region means genital. Um, limbs, okay? Uh, so the upper limb, I'm not going to bother you with a chromial. You can cross that out if you want. I won't test you on that. Uh, brachial means the arm. Okay? So let's be... Uh, of nitpicky on anatomy here. This is not your arm, okay? From here to here is your forearm. From here to here is your arm, okay? So the arm, the upper arm is also called the, uh, the brachial region, okay? If we're moving down the arm, we're moving, let's use our anatomical terms correctly. If I'm moving away from the shoulder towards the fingertips, I'm moving Distally, perfect, okay. So if I'm moving distally, we have the brachial region from shoulder to elbow. The front of the, um, the sorry, the front of the elbow is called the antecubital region. The front of the forearm is the antebrachial region. The wrist, the carpal region, and then the whole hand uh, is called the manus. But pretty much you're never gonna see it called that. You're going to break it up into its component parts. So the palmar region right, is the palm. The pollux is the thumb. And the rest of the fingers 
our digits, digital. All right. Uh, in the lower leg, so again, we're moving from hip down to toes, so we're moving again distally. Okay. Um, the hip itself is called the coxal region. Again, the groin is the inguinal region still. The thigh, okay, from, from hip to knee is called the femoral region, because that's where the femur lives. Uh, front of the knee is the patellar region. The back of the knee has its own name, we'll get to that. Um, the front of the leg, so the front of the, like the shin, uh, front of the lower leg, is the crural region. The outside, so what's the, what's the, what's the anatomical term for the outside of the leg? As the medial or lateral aspect of the leg? That's the lateral aspect of the lower leg, okay? The lateral aspect of the lower leg is called the fibular region, because that's where the fibula lives, or the peroneal region. You know, sometimes, depending on which anatomy textbook you read, the muscles that live there uh, will be called either or, so we still have to learn both. Okay? In the foot, <laughs> okay, pedal refers to foot. Um, we have the analogous bones, so the tarsals, the ankle bones that are similar, developmentally speaking, to the carpal bones of the wrist. Um, and we'll, we won't talk about metatarsal just yet. Um, and it, your hallux is your big toe, just like the pollux is the thumb. And the rest of the fingers are, or the rest of the toes, excuse me, are the digits. If we flip the person around to the back, there's a couple new ones and a couple that, uh, that we've already seen. Uh, so again, the very back of the head <laughs> is called, uh, where the, the neck attaches to the skull, it's called the occipital region. When you do your skull anatomy, that you'll get lots more in depth on that kind of stuff. Uh, in the upper, or sorry, in the torso, um, around the shoulder blade is called the scapular region. Midline, Near the spine is the vertebral region. The low back is the lumbar region. And the sacrum is the sacral region. All right, the glutes, the gluteal. Um, and perineal is uh, basically the small uh, region in between the genitals and the anus. Okay, uh, a lot of the rest of these are going to be overlapping from what we saw in the front. Brachial is the upper arm is the same. Antibrachial forearm is the same. Meta, um, I, I didn't talk about metacarpal. It's not a big deal. Digital is the same. Femoral thigh is the same. This is different. Okay. Popliteal region is the back of the knee, the crook behind the knee. Popliteal. Okay. Versus the front, which is the patella, where the patella is. Um, the back of the, le of the lower leg, the calf region, is called sural, versus in the front it's called crural. Okay? Crural in the front, sural in the back. Again, this is pointing to the same lateral aspect of the lower leg or lower limb, so the fibular or peroneal region. Um, the heel is called the calcaneal region, and the bottom of the foot is the plantar region. Okay? So. Does anybody need any clarification on any of those now? I know that's a weird thing to ask. This really is memorization, and I kind of apologize for that, but kind of don't. Right? It's something that everybody has to go through at the beginning. So um, the best way that I can, I can tell you, and everyone learns differently, um, I, I think one of the kind of typical ways that people do well memorizing this stuff is um, take this image, 
or, or one like it in your textbook uh, and take a piece of paper or your hand or something and just cover up those labels. And you say, okay, this, this, this arrow here is pointing to the test yourself, okay? It's frontal, okay? Cover it up, you got it right, great. You get it wrong, take notes. That's one that you don't have quite down. Maybe make a note of it and move on, okay? And test yourself that way as you, as you move on. And there you can start kind of honing in where your strengths and weaknesses are. If there's a few that are kind of tricky, there's often some that are a little obscure or kind of similar to one another and get mixed up, then you can at least spend your efforts uh, on those ones. Okay? Very good. <clears throat> the other way you could do it would be the opposite, right? You could take just the list. You could take just the, the list of terms and, uh, and, and mix them up and say, okay, um, anti-cubital, what does that mean? Right, uh, front of the elbow, okay? Uh, digital, that means fingers or toes, okay? And you can kind of engineer it backwards and describe it that way. All right, rote memorization, not a lot of fun at first, but once you get it, you get it, and you're gonna see these terms over and over and over in anatomy. Okay, <laughs> next, our planes, okay? So basically we're going to, we're going to take essentially um, imaginary lines through the body uh, that allow us to compare structures. Okay, so the three planes that we'll talk about are the sagittal plane, the frontal or coronal plane, and the transverse plane. Okay, so basically this allows us to visualize a section through the body without actually having to cut somebody open. So, uh, let's talk about these. Okay, so the, the um, a sagittal plane you imagine, so my hand is flat here, okay, so I'm going to make the make a slice of the plane. A sagittal plane is a plane that goes in this direction from front to back or back to front straight through the body, okay? There are how many sagittal planes? Infinite, okay? It depends on how small you cut them. Okay? There's many, 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 many sagittal planes, okay? Now, in that particular example, there is also one special one. There is one mid-sagittal plane. Okay, right dead center down the middle. That's also called the median line that we talked about earlier, where you refer to things being either medial, as in closer to the median line, or lateral, as in farther away. Okay, so the one median plane or mid-sagittal plane, many, many, many sagittal planes. <coughs> okay, so this is your only example where you take a plane and uh, the two halves are symmetrical, All right? Unless you have some strange developmental disorder, your left and right should be symmetri uh, anatomically symmetrical. Okay, not necessarily, at least superficially, not so internally, but it's another story. Um, the frontal plane or a coronal plane. You'll see those terms interchange. So you have to learn both names for it. <coughs> a coronal or frontal plane is basically a straight line. Again, my hand will be the plane cutting through the body this way. So from left to right, right to left. Okay, so cutting this way. There are, again, many, many, many potential frontal planes, depending on how small your slices are as you're cutting backwards farther or forwards farther and farther. Um, there is no frontal or coronal plane that is symmetrical anterior posterior, right? So again, re reference point using those anatomical terms. If you take a frontal plane, right here, everything in front of that plane is anterior. Everything behind it is posterior. The last one is a transverse plane. So transverse gets a little bit tricky because uh, it depends on what exactly you're referring to, but the standard definition is it's at 90 degrees 
to those other two planes. So if you have um, if a, a, a sagittal plane or, uh, going this way, right, and a coronal plane going this way, the third dimension is this way. Okay, so a transverse plane, again, there are many, many, many of them, and they're going perpendicular basically to, in this example, the torso. Now, functionally, you can also do transverse planes through a limb or through an organ. So if I'm doing my arm, I can do transverse planes at 90 degrees to the limb, transverse planes this way. Make sense? Same thing with the, with the leg. Okay. <laughs> now, understanding those planes uh, and understanding the underlying anatomy, which you eventually will, is, uh, is what makes things like advanced imaging so useful and so interesting because uh, when you look at, uh, at imaging, they're usually presented in one of these planes. There are some modalities where um, you can digitally reconstruct some imaging so that it's a really cool 3D image. But in most you know, typical uh, imaging studies, what you're going to end up looking at is these various slices in these different planes. And that's what you're seeing here. Okay? So here you're seeing a sagittal section uh, of the body, particularly the abdomen and lumbar region. Okay? There's the spine. This is the abdomen in the front. This is the pelvis down here. Here you're looking at a frontal plane of the torso. Uh, so you're seeing the head of the humerus and the shoulder joints up here. You're seeing the lungs, you're seeing the heart, you've got the, the liver and the spleen and the stomach. Uh, and then this over here, transverse, which is actually, by the way, kind of the default view for, uh, for most MRIs and CT scans, uh, is a, a transverse plane. So you're, you're imagining that you're looking um, basically, in this example, up into the torso that way. So you got slices and slices and slices and slices of the of transverse plane. Okay? So someone who's trained in, in those can basically slowly, slowly, slowly move through those slices and visualize the anatomy as they're moving through, know what's normal, what's not, uh, and get some really, really valuable information from that. Okay? Um, the one we skipped was uh, oblique. So I gave you uh, planes that were all at 90 degrees to one another, making three dimensions. Uh, anything that's off axis, that's, that's away from those 90 degree angles, is oblique. So you could, you could take a slice you know, this way, technically, it would be oblique to those 90 degree angles. One, two, three. Very good. <coughs> okay, what else do we have? If we look inside the body, uh, we have uh, some cavities. Okay, so they're basically some, I'm going to say empty spaces. They're really not empty, but we have kind of visualized there's spaces within the body that are occupied by some internal anatomy. In our body, we have these systems, these cavities organized that will separate various different parts of our anatomy. So the two basic ways to start off looking at this are the dorsal cavity and the ventral cavity. So those are terms that we saw synonyms for, right? Okay. Dorsal is the same term as synonymous with what? Sorry? Posterior. Perfect. Okay. Dorsal is the same as posterior. It means toward the back. Ventral is the same as anterior. It means towards the front. Okay? Very good. <coughs> so, in the dorsal cavity, we're typically talking about things that house the nervous system. Let's look at a picture. It might make more sense. Okay, on this image, uh, especially in the lateral view, it's super obvious. The stuff in yellow is all 
the dorsal cavity. Okay, which makes sense here, right? In this lateral view, uh, it's towards the back or posterior. So the dorsal cavity is basically broken up into these two subcavities, right? The cranial cavity, so the space inside the skull that contains the brain, and the vertebral cavity, which is the space uh, in behind the vertebral bodies in the spine that houses the spinal cord. So both of these things are bony cages that protect a very vulnerable, fragile uh, um, tissue, which is the nervous tissue of the central nervous system. Okay? If you see anatomy that is um, that we have developed and evolved to have you know, rigid, bony structures pr uh, protecting around it, it's probably vulnerable to, uh, you know, to trauma, and it very much is. <clears throat> Same thing with the lungs, right? We've developed a bony rib cage around the lungs to, to protect them, but that's in the, in the thoracic cavity. Okay? So, <clears throat> dorsal towards the back, subdivided into cranial and vertebral, <clears throat> and ventral towards the front. So we're going to subdivide the ventral cavity as well. So let's uh, start a little bit simpler <clears throat> and then uh, make it slightly more complicated after that. So the first divisions of the ventral body cavity, the, in red on this diagram, the ones towards the front, the anterior, right? we have the thoracic cavity and then the abdominal pelvic cavity, which I said a minute ago is really one big space that connects the entirety of the abdomen and the entirety of the pelvis because there's really no anatomical structure that divides them. Although we can arbitrarily draw a line at the top of the pelvis that divides the abdominal above superior and the pelvis inferior, <coughs> but for now we won't. So let's stick with the thoracic cavity. Okay? The thoracic cavity has distinguished borders. Okay? It's got the rib cage all the way around and the bottom is the diaphragm. Okay, so the diaphragm is this kind of dome-shaped parachute-like muscle that sits like this. It's important for respiration. And that's shown on this diagram right here and right here. Okay, so everything in the rib, inside the rib cage superior to the diaphragm is considered the thoracic cavity. Okay, now <laughs> in the thoracic cavity. Um, we actually are going to make it complicated and divide it into more cavities because there are actual structures in there that subdivide those pieces of anatomy. We're going to see what that means in a couple of minutes. Okay? But uh, we, have, we house essentially the lungs, right? two lungs left and right, um, the heart, and something called the mediastinum. Okay? We're going to get to all those things in a minute. <coughs> Let's move down inferior to the diaphragm. Okay, below the diaphragm. Now we're in the abdominal pelvic cavity. Like I said, technically it's all connected, uh, but we can arbitrarily divide a line uh, at the top of the pelvis and say everything inferior to that into the base of the pelvis is going to be pelvic, and above that to the diaphragm is abdominal. So <clears throat> let's see what's, what's making uh, those, uh, those cavities a little bit more complicated. Okay? Um, Actually, I'm going to come back to this, okay? I'm going to come back to those terms, pleural, mediastinum, pericardial, in a second. <clears throat> now, real, real, real basic stuff. Um, in the abdominal pelvic cavity, that's where the, you know, a good chunk of our organs are going to be found, okay? Up in the thoracic region, we have heart, lungs, 
Uh, but in the, abdominal, in the abdominal cavity, we've got a lot of stuff. We've got liver, spleen, um, intestines, both small and large, stomach, etc. In uh, the pelvis, it's mostly just the, the distal end, the farther down end of the, uh, the um, gastrointestinal tract, reproductive stuff, especially in female, uh, and uh, the bladder, although the kidneys are up in the abdominal cavity. Okay, now let's talk about what things are, 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 are giving us protection inside of those cavities and making that thoracic region a little bit more complicated. Okay. So earlier when we said uh, there's certain um, organizations to living organisms, and one of them was um, division and the ability to separate structures, this is one of those examples. So there are organs in the body that are um, surrounded and protected by uh, uh, what are called serous membranes. Okay? So the word serous means a watery fluid-like substance. Okay, so a serous membrane or a serosa is going to be a double-layered membrane. So it's, a, it's basically a back-to-back -back structure with a very thin layer of fluid in between it. So it produces that fluid and keeps it between the two layers. It's kind of like a lubricant, kind of also so that it keeps them stuck together. Okay. Um, in any example in the body, and there are a handful, in any example of a, a double-layered serous membrane in the body, there's going to be an inner layer and an outer layer. Okay? The inner layer is the layer that is touching the viscera or the organs. Okay? So it's called the visceral layer. The outer layer is always called the parietal layer. Okay? So inner layer is the visceral layer. Outer layer is the parietal layer. In between them, we have a very thin amount of serous fluid. Now, <laughs> technically speaking, that thin layer of serous fluid occupies a space which we call a cavity or a space. But when you use those terms, it's kind of confusing because it really isn't much of a space at all. So if there actually is space occupied there, more than there should be, you have a problem. Okay? You'll learn about those in, in certain disease processes. So there really shouldn't be any division of those layers. They should be stuck together with that thin layer of fluid. Okay? Um, the visual, have you ever tried to take, uh, has anybody not done any work with a microscope before? Okay. If, you, if anybody's used a microscope anywhere, high school, you were taking a, a, a slide, a glass microscope slide, had a little bit of water on it and flipped it over and put it on the surface and then try to pick it up off of it. Okay? So it has that little bit of uh, attachment, that surface tension where the water keeps them stuck together. That's how you can imagine those two layers of the, of the serosa being stuck together. Okay? It's really not a big space. It's just a thin layer of fluid that keeps them attached together. Okay? So <laughs> there are a handful of examples of those double-layered serous membranes in the body. The big ones are the pericardium which is a bag, that's a sac that surrounds the heart, <laughs> the pleura that surround the lungs, and there are two pleura, one for, the each, one for each lung, and the peritoneum, which surrounds an, uh, a bunch of the abdominal organs in the abdominal pelvic cavity. So let's take a, a second look at what exactly these things are doing, because they're protective layers. Okay? So another visual that you can maybe use is um, take um, a partially inflated balloon and shove your fist into it. So in that example, the fist 
<coughs> is the organ. And you're taking the balloon and you're sticking your hand into it, okay? The part of the balloon that's now touching the outside of your hand, that's the inner layer. That's the visceral layer. And, the, and it basically folds, the balloon will fold back on itself, and now you have an outer layer, which we say is the parietal layer, and you'd have essentially a space in between them. And that's a good visual for any of our serous membranes because they're not, I said there's two layers, but what it really is is one structure folded back on itself. And so all of those examples uh, follow that, that, same, uh, that same description. So um, in the, the pericardium, right, what does para mean? Around, good, and cardium means art. Okay, so in the pericardial membrane, right, you have essentially the heart that's, being, that's been shoved inside this double-layered membrane, folds back on itself. Now the inner layer that's touching the heart is called the visceral pericardium. The outer layer is the parietal pericardium. And in between, you have what's called the pericardial space, which again, remember, is really not much of a space. It's just space for the, a little bit of that fluid. Okay, same thing goes for the pleura. All right, so go back to this diagram here. You have a pleura, uh, a pleura that surrounds the right lung and a pleura that surrounds the left lung, okay? And again, they're gonna be individual. Uh, each one is gonna have a visceral layer inside and a parietal layer outside. And at some point when you learn about um, respiratory mechanics, that's gonna become really, really important because the inner layer of the, of the pleura is attached to the lung tissue itself and the parietal layer is attached to the inside of the rib cage. And that's actually how breathing works. So you expand the rib cage and drop the diaphragm, and through this pleura, it tugs on the lungs, and it expands the lung volume and makes them bigger and sucks air in. And when you do the opposite, they collapse and air moves out. So without this, you'd have no mechanics of breathing. All right, uh, of course, being that they are anatomy, uh, they can become damaged. Um, so um, let's say, for example, you have um, uh, um, the, the pleura around the lungs. So if you get uh, trauma to the lungs, you get a broken rib, or you get infection in the lungs that can migrate outwards and start affecting stuff around it, including the pleura, then you can get a condition called pleurisy, which hurts. There's inflammation, and every time you breathe and it pulls on the lungs and the rib cage, it hurts. Um, you can also get peritonitis, inflammation of the peritoneal membrane, which is the one that surrounds the abdominal contents. Um, so the, I don't think we had a good diagram, a good example of the, peritone, um, the peritoneum. Um, but peritonitis is something that can, be, um, can easily be quite fatal. It's a, it's a very, very significant problem. But we're not going to go there today, okay? Um, the, perit the peritoneum is actually a little bit more complicated than the others, where the pericardium and the pleura cleanly surround their, their own organs, the heart and the lungs. The, uh, the peritoneum, it envelops most, but not all of the abdominal contents. So the specifics of that, we're not really needing to get into. Just know that it's that protective membrane in the uh, abdominal membrane. Okay, now for surface anatomy, uh, we, can, uh, we can divide uh, the abdomen into, uh, into four quadrants. Okay, so make it simple enough. The dividing line where you, where you set your 90 degree angles is at the umbilicus, okay, the belly button. So if you take your umbilicus and you draw a mid-sagittal line straight up and down, 
and you draw a transverse line across, you're left with four quadrants. Okay? So remember, this is um, the person or the model or the patient's quadrants, not your quadrants. And so you have two upper quadrants above that middle line, and you have two quadrants below the middle line. Up here on his or her right, you have the right upper quadrant. You have the left upper quadrant up here, right lower down here, and left lower down here. And again, the outside borders of those are going to be the exact same outside borders of the abdominal pelvic cavity. So basically up to the diaphragm here, and up to the diaphragm here, and down into the pelvis here, and down into the pelvis here. Now, at some point, you're going to be learning about the, the, the deeper anatomy that exists inside those quadrants. Um, it's important to, to know these quadrants to be able to describe know where somebody is feeling uh, signs or symptoms um, because uh, be a lot of different examples where um, the person will uh, sometimes and not always feel pain uh, superficially right over top of whatever anatomy is underneath. So a classic example would be appendicitis. Okay, So appendicitis, it actually starts right around the umbilicus and then it migrates quickly down to the right lower quadrant which is exactly where the appendix lives. Uh, and so um, understanding patterns and understanding what lies underneath, so your surface anatomy, uh, is very, very valuable in, in narrowing down um, diagnoses. Anyway, um, the, the, the guts of that are, are really beyond what our lecture today is supposed to cover. Uh, beyond that, we've got a few other cavities uh, in the body. You're going to learn about a bunch of these in a lot more detail in your head and neck anatomy class. Um, but we have cavities, uh, so the oral cavity, obviously very important. Um, the digestive cavity, so basically um, empty spaces inside the GI tract. Uh, nasal cavity, uh, the orbital cavity, so basically the, the holes, the spaces for the eyes. The cavities in the middle ear. And then there's a few others in the body, including the joint cavities, so the synovial cavities for, for the joints. So a joint, you basically have a bone, meets another bone, and it's going to be surrounded by a capsule, which produces and, and encloses and keeps in a joint fluid, okay? So I know a lot of that seems, you know, it's either very general or, you know, sometimes not enough information, sometimes too much. It really, I apologize for that, it just has to be kind of this broad introduction, okay? The point of today was to learn some important terms, some reference points, the planes. Um, make sure that if you're not already familiar with it, that you go home and start working on these. Okay, these, uh, these regional terms, both anterior and posterior, I can pretty much guarantee you're getting tested on those at some point soon. Wink, wink. Uh, uh, same goes for these, the directional terms and the planes you have to know. Okay, and those will be really, really valuable for you when you start learning more uh, intricate, in-depth anatomy going forward because those terms are going to come up over and over and over and over. All right, anybody have any questions? All right, very good. That's enough for today. I will see you next week.